We will be covering Acts uh, with a portion that, that Mark read earlier, as well as the entire cha- the entire tenth chapter of Acts. So we've got a lot to cover, and I'll try to explain why we're doing that. Um, if the internet is telling the truth, you never know. Um, but if it is, then Google, Apple, Amazon, Disney, Mattel, and Harley Davidson all started in garages. That's where their businesses started, and now they are, in many ways, large companies that we all know. Uh, and we know that that from these humble beginnings, they, they've, they've grown. These stories are things that companies like that will often come back to because they're, they're inspirational. They're stories that, that form a key part of their identity as a company to remember where they've come from and to remember how they have grown and, and what's changed. And in a similar way, I think that the book of Acts reminds us about the humble beginnings of of Christianity, of this small group that gathered in an upper room uh, that God would use to spread His love and truth throughout the world. We're reminded of the the early leaders, this group of disciples that had run away but then had come back together, and God used them to form the church as we now know it. And as we'll see today, we're reminded of, of the house of a Gentile where the door of salvation opened so that all nations could come to know Christ and that God's gospel of of salvation could spread to the ends of the earth. I think sometimes it's good to just pause and to remember these kinds of stories, to look back on where we've come from and to give thanks for all that God has done. And so that's what I I want us to do this afternoon. I want us to consider the story of, of Acts 10, and just think about some of the, the details and the applications that can come out of that. But it's also good, isn't it, just to kind of pause and to remember what has happened in the history of the church. What happened in this, this, the house of this guy named Cornelius. To remember that story that happened on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Because what happened there has had ripple effects throughout the world. And it has ripple effects here in Louisville, Kentucky right now. This story from almost 2,000 years ago, has affected our lives. And so let's pause and and think about this. Uh, Mark read earlier a portion from Acts, and since we're in such a large uh, section of Scripture, I won't reread it, but Acts 9.31 says this, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. For the past couple of weeks, we were thinking about the conversion of Saul on the, on the road to Damascus, who will later become Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. And on the surface, at least to me, it seems strange that Saul, who was for, him, for his entire life had been radically committed to the Jewish faith, that he would become the apostle to the Gentiles. I, I might think that it would make more sense for him to be the apostle to the Jews. But if you were paying attention as we look through Acts 9, we can see why that doesn't work. Because his conversion and his proclamation of the gospel, while it may have attracted some people to faith in Jesus, most often it seemed to have the opposite effect. Rather than encourage his fellow Jews to trust in Jesus, he just made them more and more angry and enraged them to the point that they wanted to kill him. And so I think partly the connection between verses 31 and the story that comes before is is that once Saul was out of Jerusalem and even out of Israel, the church experienced peace and growth. That while there was still persecution, which we're going to see all the way into in chapter 12, 
that Saul's exit from the scene in some ways brought peace and it brought, brought growth by him not being around and allowed the church to walk in a little bit more freedom, to walk in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Spirit, and therefore it, it multiplied. It seems counterintuitive, but that seems to be what God is doing. So verse 31 serves as another summary statement in the book of Acts and shows that the command of Jesus in Acts 1-8 is coming true, that the gospel is being preached. It's in Jerusalem. It's in Judea. And it's in Samaria. That's what Jesus had called the disciples to do, and it's happening. But of course, there's one more place that the gospel needs to go. It needs to go to the ends of the earth. And here in this section of Acts, the door for the spread of the gospel to all nations is about to be unlocked. And the guy who has the keys is the apostle Peter. Remember that Jesus gave Peter the keys to the kingdom. And Peter has opened up the door for the, for the gospel in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. He opened up the door for the gospel in Samaria when the Samaritans came to faith through, um, through Philip's witness. And now he's going to be the guy that opens up the door for the Gentiles and for all nations to hear the gospel. With Saul in Tarsus, where he's going to be for more than a decade, Luke now shifts his focus back to Peter. And Peter's going to be the central character from Acts 9.32 to 12.19. And then Luke's going to leave him because remember the, the story of Acts is about the spread of the gospel. And as we read earlier, the first thing that we find about Peter are these two miracles, the healing of Aeneas and the raising of Tabitha. Then in chapters 10 through 12, we're going to see Peter proclaim the gospel to Cornelius. Then he's going to report that event to the church. And then in chapter 12, he's going to be imprisoned and then rescued from prison by an angel. But for today, we're just going to think about these miracles that he performed and the way that he proclaimed the gospel to Cornelius. So again, I just want us to consider this account to remember that this is where a, a major refocusing of the early church happened. That this is, is where the, the shift that led to you and I as non-Jews having the door open for us to become children of God through faith in Jesus. So let me just begin with a few thoughts about the Peter's miracles that we read about there in, in chapter 9. Again, at first glance, these things seem a little bit out of place. We might wonder why they would occur at this point in Luke's narrative and what was significant about them. But as we look closely, we begin to see that they would be placed here just before the conversion of Cornelius, the first Gentile to come to Christ. And, and the reason for that is that these miracles authenticate Peter's apostleship. In other words, they show us that Peter really had authority in the early church and that God really was speaking through him in a unique and very significant way. And not just in a unique way, but in a way that showed that the power and the authority of Jesus was on Peter. We might assume that, but but we have to understand why this was important. Because something major is going to happen, and we need to trust Peter that this is actually God working through him. You may have noticed the parallel that these miracles uh, shape to, to Jesus' miracles. Uh, the raising of Aeneas reminds us of that account in the Gospels, you remember, where a man was lowered on his mat uh, through the roof by his friends, and then Jesus says to him, rise, pick up your bed, and go home, just as Peter said to this guy. The parallels in Tabitha's resurrection are even more striking. They remind us of uh, a man named Jairus, who came to Jesus because his daughter was very sick. And before Jesus could, could get there, the little girl died. But Jesus still went to see her, and he brought along James and John and Peter was in the room and they went in there. And, and just as, as Peter went in to see 
Tabitha, they went in to see this little girl. And like Jesus, Peter was called and he came to this desperate situation. And in both scenes, the scene with Jairus and this scene here with with Tabitha, there's great weeping, one at the loss of a 12-year-old girl and one at the loss of this gentle woman who was full of good works and, and charity. She'd made clothes for those in need. In both scenes, everyone's sent out of the room. And then the clearest parallel is found in the words that are spoken by Jesus and by Peter. You can see this, Mark tells us, that, that Jesus, in telling the child to rise, used an Aramaic word for little girl, which is Talitha. And Peter prays and then says to this woman, Tabitha, rise. And the parallel is, is so clear that it, if, if you know that gospel account, it's immediately what we think of. So these miracles then are to affirm that Peter was really walking in the steps of Jesus, that he was working in the in the power of Jesus, that he was announcing salvation in Jesus, and that he was doing this all for the glory of Jesus, that he's not trusting in his own strength. He says to Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. And and Tabitha is healed only after Peter prays to Jesus. And with Jesus' miracles, as with Jesus' miracles, these things lead to people turning to the Lord, verse 35 says. And verse 42 says that many people believe in the Lord. These Miracles lead to people not glorifying Peter, but trusting in Jesus. So this is not simply to show that Jesus' authority is resting on Peter, but also that this is Jesus' heart. I I was reading a short story this week by Wendell Berry, and the narrator was talking about how his his father would send him to, to do work on a farm that the family owned, but that they weren't able to farm for themselves. And the narrator talked about how his father really wanted to be the guy that did the work, but he couldn't. And so he would send his son. And so he wrote, it was a job of work that he would have loved to take part in, but had little time to take part in. And so was sending me to take part in with his proxy, so to speak. And this is what stood out to me as I was reading it and thinking about Acts. Not as the bearer of his authority, but as the heir of his imagined joy not as the bearer of his authority, but as the heir of his imagined joy. And as I thought about Peter working in the authority of Jesus. He's not only working in the authority of Jesus, but he's working in the, the joy of Jesus. That, that he's doing what Jesus really wanted to do. And that what Jesus would have done, not just with authority, but with a smile on his faith, face as the outworking of his great desire that all people would be saved. Remember the Acts is the record of all that Jesus continued to do and teach through his disciples, and Peter is a part of that. We have to know this. We have to be able to trust that Peter is acting on the authority of Jesus and in the desires of Jesus because he's about to take part in something that few, if any, members of the early church saw coming and that was going to change the course of the whole church from then on. It all began in Caesarea, about 40 miles north of where Peter was in Joppa on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Luke starts the account in Acts 10. Let me just read verses 1 through 7. It says, At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayer and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa 
and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, sent them to Joppa. So we're introduced to this man named Cornelius. He's a centurion. He would have had charge over a hundred soldiers, and he was a part of a larger group, this Italian cohort, which would have had probably about 600 soldiers. But more important than his high position in society, we're told that he was a man of deep faith, that he was devout, he was committed, and he was dedicated in his faith in God. He feared God, which may have meant that he was part of a a formal group of non-Jewish believers who had adopted Jewish beliefs and customs but didn't fully convert to Judaism. He's also a leader in his home, and he had led his whole household to to trust in and to fear the God of Israel. And his faith was a practical one. It was one that expressed itself in money that was given to the poor and and daily prayers. As you think about Cornelius, as you think about this description that we're given, we might say this of, of Cornelius. He was a good man. Cornelius was a good man. And by many standards, he was that. Holding in our mind this truth that, yes, we are all rebels against God in many ways, Cornelius reminds us that there are many good men and women in our world. People who do good things. People who lead their families well. People who are faithful to their spouse and to their spouse and who raise their children to be kind and to be generous. There's people who, who help the poor, who give their time and their money to charitable causes. And many of us know these people. Individuals who remind us of God's common grace in this world. People who may not be believers in Jesus, but to be honest, sometimes they reflect the heart of Jesus even better than some Christians do. And yet what follows in this passage reminds us that those that we might call good people, people as good as Cornelius and even better, that even these people still must encounter in a real way the person of Jesus Christ that their external goodness doesn't solve the problem of their spiritual lostness and their need to be made right with God through faith in Jesus. God's means of bringing the gospel to Cornelius began at the ninth hour, about 3 p.m., when an angel spoke his name. In In a way similar to Saul, he said, What is it, Lord? And he's told that his good deeds and his prayers have have been seen, they've been heard by God, they've ascended to God as a memorial. It's it's the language of sacrifices and burnt offerings. His prayers and his good deeds were accepted by God as a, a sacrifice of seeking, we might say, and a sacrifice that was going to be rewarded with the discovery of what he was really looking for. John 1, nine tells us that the true light who gives light to everyone had come into the world and Cornelius responded well to the light that he had been given and so God in his kindness, is going to send Cornelius more light so that he can understand who Jesus is. The next step for Cornelius, according to the angel, is to send men down to Joppa to meet a guy named Simon Peter. Now we all assume if we if someone told us to go find Simon Peter, we'd do it because we know who Peter is, but Cornelius probably had no idea who Simon Peter was. But he obeys. Cornelius wasn't to go to Peter, but he was to send for him because we're going to find out that God needs to do a work in Peter's heart through that journey just as much as he needs to do a work in Cornelius' heart. In fact, I wonder if God may have already been working in Peter's heart. Peter's staying with a guy named Simon, 
who was a tanner, a man who would have worked with dead animals all the time and would have been continually unclean. And yet Peter is willing to stay with him and hang out with him. And that thought maybe shows us that Peter's mind is is changing a little bit. It may have been encouraging to Cornelius to know that that Peter, who was a strict Jew, was willing to stay with this man who was continually unclean. But whatever he thought, Cornelius obeys. He sends two servants and a soldier to find Peter. And the story continues. Pick it up in verse 9. The next day, this is after Cornelius' vision, the next day, as they were on their journey, this two servants and the and the soldier, and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So we find Cornelius isn't the only person having visions. Just as the the three men from Cornelius are getting near to Joppa, Peter goes up on the flat rooftop of of Simon's house to to pray, and it's, it's noon, and as happens with most of us around noon, Peter got hungry. Uh, he asked his hosts for some food, and while they were preparing it, it says that he fell into some sort of a, a trance. Maybe he was tired. It gives us hope that if we fall asleep, you know, God can still use that. But he falls into some sort of trance, and in that trance, he sees coming down from heaven this sheet that's filled with all kinds of animals. You might picture this this giant sheet, and, and inside this sheet there's maybe chickens and pigs and cows, and there's also reptiles, so snakes and alligators and lizards and there's birds pigeons crows buzzards and as far as animals that a jewish person could eat there were both clean and unclean animals together in this sheet this tablecloth if you will there were items you might see with the the circle and the k they were kosher and then there were other items that were far from kosher that no one was allowed to eat if they were jewish And as Peter takes inventory of what's there, he hears this voice, a voice that seems to have been the Lord, given how Peter responds. And the voice says, in more more or less words, he says, Are you hungry, Peter? Get up, kill, and eat. And Peter, who often tried to correct Jesus when he was on earth, decided that he would do the same thing as Jesus spoke to him in a vision. You know, old habits die hard. And Peter argues with the resurrected Jesus in his vision. Uh, just as he had argued with Jesus on earth. And his response is, not so, Lord. He says, no way, Jesus. I've, I've never eaten anything unclean. I've kept the food laws perfectly up to this point. I'm not about to stop now. But the voice came, driving into Peter's heart the point of the vision. And the point is this, what God has made clean, do not call common. As I think about Peter, beyond just his desire to keep God's commands, you might just think about how difficult it would be if for your whole life you had never eaten any unclean foods to think about sort of breaking that streak. I mean, what would that be like for him? That would change his whole life. 
And yet Jesus had already taught that while he was alive, that it's not what goes into a person that makes him unclean, but rather what comes out, what comes out of his heart. And Mark tells us that Jesus had declared all foods clean. But Peter's coming to grips with this, and he sees the vision two more times, and he's still a little perplexed, but clarity is about to knock at his door. And he's going to find out that this vision is about a lot more than food. Acts, Acts 10, 17-23. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you, to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. God, in his perfect sovereign timing, connects Peter's vision of the sheet with the arrival of these three guys from Cornelius. And he's told in the vision, go down and meet these guys. And Peter not only agrees to go with them, but he even invites them to stay the night with him. He doesn't send them down the street to go to the, the Joppa Inn or whatever it might have been, but he invites them in, Gentiles, to come and to lodge with him for the night. It's hard for us to see the significance of Simon Peter showing hospitality to Gentiles in the house of Simon the Tanner, but know that this was radical and this was massively controversial for him to do this. After a night's rest, though I, I wonder how well Peter slept, with all that he was probably thinking about. We read in verses 23 through 33, the next day Peter rose and went with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked them, Why you sent for me? Stop there for a minute. What? Everyone gets to Caesarea that this gathering is going to happen. And in the scene, Peter walks into Cornelius' house. And Cornelius has gathered a large group. He's, he, he brought his whole family in and all of his friends. And they're all there waiting for Peter. It would be a little intimidating, I think, if I was Peter. But he walks in. And right when he walks in, Cornelius falls down at Peter's feet. And Peter immediately tells him to, to get up that he has come in the power and the authority of Jesus, but he also is not Jesus. He's just a man like Cornelius. But unlike Cornelius, who was a Gentile, Peter is a Jewish man. And the laws and the rules of the day said that Jews were not to associate with, they were not to visit the homes of those who were not Jews, probably because of the risk of being made unclean. But Peter says to Cornelius that God was teaching him something. Peter saw in this moment that the vision that he had had was not just about clean and unclean animals for eating. It was about clean 
and unclean people, and that he had no right to call anyone common or unclean. That's the key, one of the key phrases here, verse 28, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. And he asks Cornelius why he was sent for. And Cornelius explains the vision that he had in verses 30 and 32. And then in verse 33, he says, So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. What a great evidence of God's calling Cornelius, drawing Cornelius, of God's grace in Cornelius' life, this willingness to hear, this openness, this humility to receive the word of God. Cornelius doesn't ask for a miracle. He asks for Peter to preach a sermon. He's good soil, like in Jesus' parable. Cornelius is ready to receive the implanted word that's able to save his soul. And in response to that request, verses 34 to 48, here's what happens in the rest of the scene. Finally, these two groups of people are together, and something amazing is about to happen. Verse 34, So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To all the prophets, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water from baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as have we? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Two conversions happen in this moment. The conversion of Peter and the conversion of the first Gentiles. We see in verses 34 and 35 the evidence of Peter's conversion. Not a conversion to follow Jesus, but rather um, a conversion to the reality that God shows no partiality. That God shows no favoritism or prejudice to a specific ethnic group or to a race, as had been previously thought. But this vision that he had had two days prior had helped him to understand this. And the vision that Cornelius had had affirmed it. And the work of the Spirit in his own heart helped Peter to see that God is seeking people. That he's seeking a family of faith from every tribe and every tongue 
and every people and every nation that everyone who calls in who everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins that in Jesus the seed of Abraham all nations are blessed that God's house is a house of prayer for all nations that the wall of division between Jews and Gentiles was being broken down through the good word of Jesus this is the news that Peter proclaims how Jesus was announced by John the Baptist and affirmed through his own signs and wonders and, and preaching that, that he was truly the Messiah. He was the promised one sent to rescue his children. Peter talked about how, how Jesus was crucified, but he rose again and he, was sent, he sent out his disciples to tell anyone who would listen that he was going to return as the judge of all the earth but also that forgiveness was available for those who would believe and trust in him. While he was still preaching, the middle of Peter's sermon, he didn't get to finish, while he's still talking, Cornelius and his family were doing just that. They were believing. They were agreeing that Jesus truly was God in the flesh, who had lived a life of holiness, who had, who had died a death that would save them if they would repent and believe. They were trusting in Christ for forgiveness. And before Peter finished, the Holy Spirit fell just as he had on the day of Pentecost. And this house was filled with these new children of God through faith in Jesus, speaking the praises of God in various tongues. This is the Gentile Pentecost. It's a mere image of what happened in Acts chapter 2. And the Jewish brothers that Peter had brought with him from Joppa had no idea what to do with this. How is this possible that Gentiles have received the Holy Spirit? They didn't know what to do, but Peter knew exactly what to do because he'd seen this before. And so he asked, is there any reason that these new believers can't be baptized? And just as with the Ethiopian eunuch, that he could not be held back from the waters of baptism because of some external factor, these Gentiles, there was no reason that they weren't allowed to be baptized. They believed in Jesus. They received the Holy Spirit. They were truly children of God. And so they were baptized into the name of Jesus, and the first Gentiles were welcomed into God's family. Cornelius was converted to faith in Jesus, and Peter was converted to the belief that anyone and everyone who repents and believes, regardless of their ethnicity, that they are children of God, forgiven by Jesus, filled with the Spirit. This is not an easy transition, and in fact, um, Peter sort of regresses a little bit he relapses he chooses in galatians 2 to hang out with his jewish friends and to hold the gentile believers at arm's length a little bit and much of the new testament shows us how the church had to adjust to this idea and how paul was actually key in making this transition and we're going to get to acts 15 and see how this event was key to helping people to understand that the gospel was not just for the jewish people it was going to anyone and everyone who would believe but as we read this account here and we know the difficulties that are going to come, we can also praise God that Peter and Cornelius were converted this day, that the door of the gospel was opened to all people who repent and believe. Because as far as I know, none of us here are ethnically Jewish. So the fact that Cornelius could be saved, that the door was open for Cornelius, means that we can also be brought to faith. What a beautiful story of God's kindness and salvation of God's sovereign and supernatural work of drawing people and saving people, bringing these things together of His grace to change our minds and to bring us in line with His heart and His will. 
And so having seen this beautiful story, let me just give you four things to reflect on, four simple applications as it were. First, good people need the gospel. Good people need the gospel. Even those who instinctively, through God's common grace, do what God would have them to do, need to repent of their sins and believe in Christ. Their good deeds will not save them. Your good deeds will not save you. Salvation is found in Jesus alone, not in the good things we do. We read this earlier in our assurance of forgiveness. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Friends, your goodness cannot save you but Jesus can. And alongside that, we're encouraged not only that good people need the gospel, but also those who seek the Lord will find Him. Those who seek the Lord will find Him. Isn't it encouraging yet again in the, in, in the book of Acts to see that God is drawing people? That as they respond to the light that God gives them, that God graciously gives them more light. They're not saved simply by responding to light that they, the light that they are given, but rather we know that in God's goodness, when people do respond to that light, when they truly seek Him, that they will find Him, that, that they will find Him in Jesus, that God will make a way for them to hear the gospel and to be changed. Those who seek the Lord will find Him. Third, God shows no partiality, so neither should we. God shows no partiality, so neither should we. With the salvation of Cornelius, God announced loud and clear that there are no unclean people. There is no ethnic group, there is no race, there is no nation that is not able to be saved by Jesus. There are no external requirements to becoming a Christian, no lineage that you have to have to become a follower of Jesus. Don't ever think that some external factor could keep someone from becoming a follower of Jesus. And may we as God's people never be marked by racism, by nationalism, by some sort of xenophobia, or by prejudice of any kind. May we never call a person unclean, or unsavable, or common, because He has called all people. And everyone is clean. Everyone is savable. So rather we should go out in the authority and the joy of King Jesus. And announce salvation for everyone. We should announce salvation to apparently good people. And we should announce salvation to people who may be the worst of sinners. We should announce salvation to Jews and Gentiles and everyone in between. To all people. And with that in mind, the other response, that I, the final response is to rejoice in the wideness of God's mercy. Rejoice in the great wideness of God's mercy. Because for each of us, the fact that Cornelius could be converted means that we can be converted. That we can become children of God. That we can be saved. That we can be part of the people of God through faith in Jesus. This could look just like a dry story, some piece of, of history, but it should cause us to rejoice in what God has done. This 
massive shift that has happened. This amazing thing that God has done. That, that he has taken the gospel, which was reserved for this small group of people, it would seem. Though we know that from eternity past, God was seeking to bring glory to himself and to gather people from all nations. But here in this moment, it's as if that door is, is cracked open and it will never close. It's just going to get more and more open until all people and all from every tribe and tongue and people and nation are saved. That's, that, that all the nations would come to Christ. And so we can rejoice in the wideness of God's mercy because it means that we, who were not born as physical children of Abraham, can be children of Abraham by faith in Christ. So I want, I want us to rejoice in what God has done. And as we rejoice, we will join in on what God is, is still doing as he's drawing people and saving people from every nation on earth until he returns. In a moment, we're going to sing, Come, People of the Risen King. Uh, and the point of singing that song to close is to remember that God has brought many people from all nations together to rejoice in what King Jesus has done. And we are a part of that. And I pray that we would see it in this story.